Good morning. If you've been with us these past several weeks, you will remember that we're in a teaching series we've called, Did God Really Say That? Where we're taking a look at some of the most famous and oft-quoted things in the Bible that the Bible never actually says, because they're not actually true. Such as, God will never give you more than you can handle, or money is the root of all evil. That's what we're talking about today, but in light of the tragedies in Buffalo and Uvalde this week, it might seem off-key or even crass that we're talking about money this morning. But at its core, the scripture we're focusing on today and this sermon is about the human heart and its inclination towards sin, the nature and reality of evil, and about the hope that we have in Jesus, who assures us that somehow God wins, that good wins, even when that seems impossible and far off. Next week, Brian will be concluding the series with a message that will look at some of the things we often say to ourselves or to others in our attempts to make sense of the senseless and grapple with the reality of evil and death. So please do come back and join us for that next week. But in the meantime, I want to share with you my suspicion that even if the headlines had been different this week, it's very likely that we'd still be uncomfortable talking about money here today. Why does that seem like a taboo subject? Maybe especially at church, besides the fact that many of us, like me, were raised not to talk about it anywhere. One reason might be that it can be a tense subject. It can be divisive in churches just as in families. Perhaps some of you have experienced that firsthand. We probably all know someone who doesn't trust Christians precisely because of how they see them and the churches they belong to spending the money. Perhaps you've had a bad experience in the past with how a congregation you are a part of or a pastor you trusted spent the money. Or maybe, like so many, you just know what Jesus taught about it and you look at the gap between what he said and the way you live your life or the way that you see other Christians living your life and the gulf between what he preached and how we sometimes live makes you unsettled. Whatever it is, it can be unsettling. I know it is for me. The idea that Jesus and following him can be a means to obtaining wealth or prosperity doesn't pass the smell test with most of us. We call this the prosperity gospel, and we tend to think of it as a uniquely modern problem, a peculiar and relatively recent phenomenon in world history that's developed and been perfected in the mass media uh, market that we have in the United States that can be exported along with all our pop culture to the rest of the world. The list of Christian ministers you're probably thinking of right now that come to mind is long and growing. We could take quite a while to list them. My favorite example is, uh, we might see him up here on the screen or not, Dr. Eli Gemstone. I can pick on him because he's not real, because that name would just be too great. He's a character played by John Goodman on TV, one of the most underappreciated actors, in my opinion. He's a Florida televangelist whose reach and fortune are ever-expanding. His assistant pastors are his two ne'er-do-well sons. If you know your cars, you know he's standing in front of a hundred and some thousand dollar Mercedes tactical vehicle. They travel in three matching Gulfstream jets, which they've named, and this is my favorite part, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. <laughs> he's fictional. But this is one of those cases where fiction is a little too close 
to reality for comfort. I confess I can't really recommend the show because it started getting a little too real around episode two, and I'm not that cool. But the point is that as much as this can seem like a very visible problem in our world and our church today, this is anything but new. Our main scripture passage for today is taken from Paul's first letter to his protege, Timothy, whom Paul has been preparing as part of the next generation of leaders in the early church. Like almost all of Paul's letters that we have, this one was written to Timothy with the understanding that he would share it with the people in the churches he helped lead. This was the convention of the day, and these letters served as a sort of mission-defining moment, a charge to both Timothy and those in the church. The letters that survived long enough that we still have them today were those that were circulated the most widely through countless subsequent re-readings and reprintings, the retweets of the ancient world, because so many more people than just Timothy got something out of them. They shared them. Generations of Christ-seekers have found these words helpful in their daily walk. Paul begins his discussion of how dangerous money and particularly the love of money can be and how we can follow a different path by addressing the problem of the prosperity gospel preachers of his day. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree with the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and they understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who've been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. In other words, this is not a new problem. It's not a modern problem. It wasn't even a new problem in Paul's day or Jesus' day. That's why they taught about it so much when they taught about the human heart. It was a problem thousands of years before, since the beginning of time. In the Old Testament, Isaiah would warn his people, why do you spend your money and your labor for that which does not satisfy and so many others, but we don't have time for a review of the Old Testament today because I've got my timer going here to make sure that we even make it through the parts of the New Testament I want to cover. Maybe that's part of why we're uncomfortable talking about money in church, because that's not the gospel we preach, and we recognize it's a distortion and a stumbling block for so many others. It should be important to us, and it should actually be one of the top reasons we talk about it in church, not one of the reasons we avoid talking about it. The difference is we should preach the truth that Jesus did. Now that I've addressed that prosperity gospel elephant in the room and suggested that it might be one of the reasons why we're uncomfortable talking about it, it's certainly one of the reasons I can be uncomfortable preaching about it, it's time to raise one more issue. That is not the biggest reason I think we don't want to talk about it. Polls routinely show that we'd rather not talk about money, period. Thank you very much. In a 2020 survey of over 1,200 Americans done by a major American financial institution, people reported that they were, and this is a quote, more comfortable talking about marriage problems, mental illness, drug addiction, race, sex, politics, and religion than they were talking about money. They even ranked their level of comfortability talking about these different things. And among all those, people were apparently twice, twice as willing to have a conversation, whether with a stranger or a close friend, about their marital difficulties, their drug use, 
their mental illnesses than they were to have a conversation about their household income or their debt. That's kind of crazy. But I know it's true because I'm a pastor and I talk with a lot of you. And many of you have come to talk with me about all those things except household income and debt. <laughs> if you're married or you've been in a household with someone, you know that a lot of the fights you have are not really fights about whatever the thing you're fighting about is. They're fights about the money that you don't want to talk about. The biggest reason we don't want to talk about it is because it can be a bit like stepping on the bathroom scale the first morning back from vacation, and perhaps in public too. It can reveal things about us that we'd rather not have others know. Worse, it can even show us things about ourselves we weren't aware of or have been trying to avoid confronting. Why? Because despite what we prefer to tell ourselves, we prefer to tell ourselves that our money follows our heart and that we invest the most in the people and causes we care the most about, the opposite is true. Our money does not follow our heart. Our heart follows our money. That's what Jesus means when he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you have just concluded a year of spending on college tuition for your child, you will know that that is true. There is a good chance that you care more about their grades than they do. I know that was the case when I was a student whose parents were footing the bill. Here's a scary thought. If you ever get audited, the accountant who does the audit will probably know more about the state of your soul than your minister, your best friends, your spouse, and maybe even yourself. God, of course, knows best of all. Psalm 139 says, He knows your hearts, your thoughts. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it all together. But even so, most of us are pretty good at avoiding the subject of money with Him, too. So there it is. If we talk too much about our money, we run the risk of exposing the parts of ourselves and our lives that most of us would, not, would prefer not to have laid bare before our eyes. Many of you had the pleasure of knowing Walt Byerly, a wonderful man and a member of our church who passed away last year. If Walt were here today, this is where he'd wink and tell me, careful now, you're about to go from preaching to meddling. But I'm going to meddle away because that's what Paul's doing. This is chapter 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. It is worth pointing out that Paul is aware that there is a level of poverty that most of the world lives in, which is dehumanizing, where we don't have enough to take care of our daily needs. And that is not what he's talking about here when he says that poverty, not being trapped by wealth or the desire for it, is a good condition for people to be in. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, this is the real quote, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Godliness with contentment is great gain. What is godliness? It's just another way of saying to follow God's commandments, to open our hearts to His, of becoming more like Jesus in the way we hope, think, pray, and act. What is true contentment? John Stott, great preacher, describes it this way. 
Christian contentment does not depend on external things. Thus, I have learned the secret, Paul writes in another letter, his letter to the Philippians, of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. This Christian secret is not to be found within ourselves, but in Christ. I can do everything, Paul continues, through Christ who gives me strength. Thus, genuine contentment is not self-sufficiency, but Christ-sufficiency. This is why godliness plus contentment equals great spiritual gain. As opposed to the godliness as a means of financial gain mentality that he just warned the church about a few verses ago. It is a reminder that the proper mentality when it comes to godliness is to seek godliness, not for what it can bring us in this life, but for the intangible things that can come from it, the contentment of knowing our Lord more intimately and becoming more like him. In an important sense, godliness is its own reward, and it is about gain, but it's just not about gaining the things that so often we find ourselves striving for. Contentment leads to worship. Discontentment leads to false pride and idolatry and covetousness. That's why they're preaching so much against it in any of the sermons you read in the Bible. That's why it's in the Ten Commandments from the very get-go. The ones that God spends the most time on are the ones that have to do with finding our contentment in God, not in the things of this world, the ones about avoiding idolatry, the ones about proper worship. Andrew Carnegie, who was born a poor immigrant but grew up to become one of the wealthiest men in world history, once wrote in his journal, the amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry there is. No idol is more debasing than the worship of money. Make of that what you will. You can take those as the words of a hypocrite, or you can take those as the words of someone who knows all too well what they're talking about. Contentment with godliness is great gain. Those who want to get rich will fall into temptation, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. These two men you see on your screen, Andrew Carnegie and his best frenemy, friend slash enemy, Henry Clay Frick, two of the wealthiest men of their day, and they had a lot to say about money, and we'll take a look at that at a few more points throughout this sermon. As I mentioned earlier, though, this isn't ultimately about money. The heart of the matter is, well, the heart. It's about the love of money. It's wandering into the realm of, of, of hyperbole, of course, to say it's the root of all evil. As we've seen this week, the evil one has a wider range of tools with which to corrupt the human heart and induce people to sin. Nonetheless, the love of money is one of the most effective weapons in his toolkit because it doesn't look so dangerous. We're fine with talking about fire safety or gun safety or all kinds of safety. You have to get a license to drive a car. There are many things in this world that we will accept. You have to learn how to use with caution and care because the results of not doing so can turn ugly. But with money, we tend to not really think about it too much and just assume that everything will work out. We don't do a good job of handling with care, not as much as we should have. Should. Another problem with the popular misquoting of verse 10 is that the second half of the verse is usually forgotten altogether. Right after the warning that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, Paul continues his thought. Some people eager for money have wandered far from the faith, faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 
This is where it goes from being philosophical observation to a pastoral concern. It's personal here for Paul because as a pastor, he knows the people he has ministered to and he knows the people that Timothy leads. And he knows that as long as the followers of Jesus who are in need of shepherds are flocks of human beings and not sheep, this will continue to be a significant and sometimes heartbreakingly so pastoral issue. It's personal for me. My family has been torn apart by the pursuit of wealth, the desire for it, the lack of it, what have you. And I bet for some of you it's personal as well because you have seen firsthand or experienced how misguided loves, misguided desires can tear apart a person or a marriage or a family from the inside out. It's about idolatry. It's about coveting. The 10th commandment, the last one on the list, is one of the easiest ones to forget. We remember a lot of the you shall nots. They're short, they're sweet. Who disagrees with them? You shall not murder. You, sh you shouldn't commit adultery. You shouldn't steal. You shouldn't lie. God doesn't go into a lot of detail. And then finally, the last one, you shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that belongs to you. Shall you covet? Now, why does he all of a sudden get very specific and give us so much to work with? Well, I think it's because God knows he has to spell this one out a little more because it's one we have a harder time with. Just like idolatry and true worship get a lot of explanation, so does coveting. Jesus knows this too. Contentment and coveting cannot go together. Contentment with what's, what we have and not with striving to have more or even coveting the things that wealth can buy were major heart issues for human beings then and as they are today. That's why when Jesus taught about the heart, he so often found himself teaching about money or the desire for it. He knows what it can do when we have these distorted desires. Many of you know one of his most famous stories, commonly called the prodigal son, but which Jesus seems to call the man who had two sons. Jesus tells the story of two brothers who at first glance appear to be very different, but actually turn out to be more like one another than they would like to admit. The restless younger son rebels by running away, wasting his inheritance on ruinous living and a rebuke of his father's teaching, and altogether rejects a relationship with his dad. The elder brother rebels also, but he does it by rejecting his father's values and by rebuking him for his mercy, by refusing to rejoice at his younger brother's eventual repentance and return home. The elder brother revolts against the father's restoration of the younger brother's place in the family. Why? Because it will cost him out of the remainder of the estate which he plans to inherit himself one day. Never mind, in the customs of their day, he would have gotten a double portion to begin with. He doesn't want to spend that money. But Jesus is not really telling us about a family that he knew. He's telling us about God, the father in the story is a stand-in for God. And yes, his grace is costly, but it is not costly to us because we miss out on an inheritance if God gives his grace to someone else. It is costly to God who gave his only son for it. It is costly to Jesus who goes the way of the cross, but it is free to you and to me and to anyone who will receive it. Jesus told this story and so many others because he wanted to remind us of that 
And just like the father who comes running out after the prodigal who returns, and just like the father who comes out to his son, the elder brother, who seemed at first to be dutiful and devout, and begs him to come back into the house, into the party, into the outstretched arms of the father's love, Jesus knows that we need some help here as well. He uses this story to show us that when it comes to money and the love of it, both profligacy and miserliness can be a means of going astray. That's the power of money and its ability to mislead and corrupt the human heart. Whether we are poor and just want it, whether we are rich and have too much of it, whether, like most of uh, you, I suspect we would put ourselves somewhere in between, we walk on a razor's edge. This is a handle with caution sort of thing. Paul continues. This is verse 17, still in chapter 6. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, puffed up, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put, to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Notice the division between provision and prosperity. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. For in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves in heaven and as a firm foundation for the coming age. And this is the big part of the line. So that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Paul has ministered to those who have a lot and find themselves still feeling empty. So back to Andrew Carnegie. Let's put him and his frenemy, Henry Clay Frick, back up on the board two of the richest men in history, two of the most successful business magnates ever, and two of the most curious features and bitter rivals. If you want a good summer read, there's a book by a historian about them called Meet You in Hell, and you'll see why we get that title in just a minute. Andrew Carnegie became one of the wealthiest men in the world, along with Henry Frick, by looking out for himself and his business with ruthless efficiency. And towards the halfway point in his life, he decided that he wanted to make a change, and he began to give it all away. He, gave, he spent the last half of his life giving away most of his wealth, 2,800 public and free libraries, which he called the free universities of the people around the world in this country and as far away as Fiji and New Zealand, world-class education and research institutions and an endowment for international peace, just to name a few. He eventually got to the point where he counted his wealth not in terms of what he had, but what he had given away. And yet, for all his largesse, for all the good works that he unimpeachably did with his wealth, he was a troubled man. This is not me projecting, these are his own words. Whether it was his journals, which we have today, or the things that he often said in public, he was not a man who was at ease. He said once at the opening of a new library, I'll put this library and institution up against any other form of benevolence there is, and all's well since it's growing better and bigger every time. And I know that when I go to a trial for the things I've done on earth, I think I'll get a verdict of not guilty through my efforts on this earth to make it a little bit better than I found it. A pity that despite being a Presbyterian and flirting with it and eventually coming home to the Presbyterian church, he didn't know that that's not how it works, that God does not deal with us in this life or the next according to some sort of relative reading of our moral balance sheet. And thank God he doesn't. 
That is, after all, a key part of the gospel message. The good news that I want each of us to take with us today is this, that God does not work that way. But for the moment, it's also important to note that Carnegie and Frick, fabulously wealthy and successful as they were by worldly standards, even as admirable, trailblazing philanthropists, were ill at ease with the wealth they had had and how much of their time and energy and hearts they had spent getting it. As Carnegie lay in his deathbed, he tried to make amends with the people he had hurt along the way as well. And he sent a note to Frick to try to get together that they might talk after over 20 years of not doing so. He sent a messenger down to the house that Frick had built to make Carnegie's look small. And he, I'm not, I'm not joking, they were both 5'3", and they had rival skyscrapers whose was taller. I used to work in the Frick building before I was going into ministry and was pursuing a career in the, uh, in the law. And it is one of the most luxurious office buildings even 100 years after it was built. And it is taller than Carnegie's building, and it is to the east. So when the sun rises, Carnegie's is in perpetual shadow. I kid you not, <laughs> these people had issues. These people had issues, you can't make it up. But he wanted to make amends, and so he sent Frick a note saying, let's get together, I wanna to bury the hatchet and talk. And Frick's response was to send the note back with his secretary to say, you can tell Carnegie I'll meet him, but I won't see him today. I'll meet him in hell where we're both going. The point is not to speculate about whether Henry Clay Frick was right about his final destination or Andrew Carnegie's or anyone else's. The point is to illustrate that for all the success in the world, these two men were one who wondered, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world if he loses his soul? They were men who were ill at ease with everything they had done in their pursuit of wealth. The pastoral concern here for them and for us, for anyone who is struggling with a love of money, whether it is just a little bit or a whole lot of it, is very real. And we don't have to want it, at, oh, pardon me, is very real for those who've obtained lots of it and those who still wish to obtain more. Jesus knows this, and that's why, again, he has some of the most memorable lines there are when it comes to money, lines that even those who don't know Jesus very well seem to know. It's, what he, it's the lines like when he says to the rich young ruler, a man who'd followed all the rules right up until that point, go and sell everything you have in response to the man's question, how do I enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And it's easy to hear that story and think, well, that's what Jesus loves, loves the poor. That's a good and a noble thing to do with his money. Of course, that sounds like something Jesus would tell you to do. He's not going to tell you to build a skyscraper bigger than someone else's. He's Jesus. But the point of that story is not Jesus' love for the poor, which is very real and we see in countless other places in the scriptures. The point in that story is that it is Jesus' pastoral care for a person who though they have tried to follow God in every other way, still feels empty inside and still knows something is lacking. The reason the man went away when he heard that Jesus suggests he give everything he have to the poor and store up his treasure in heaven and follow Jesus, the reason he went away sad was because he had great wealth. In other words, that's where his real treasure was. The reason that Jesus tells him to do that 
is because this is what that man needs to be free. He thought he possessed his possessions, but what Jesus knows is that they actually possessed him. And Paul knows this too. In his final warnings to Timothy and his final encouragements to any of us who would read these words, he says this, verse 11 and 12, but you, man of God, men and women of God, anyone who would follow Jesus, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and which you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who gives us the life that is really life. In the end, this is a tale of two teachers, the false teacher, whether that is the false teacher on the television or the teacher inside us that says there is a way that is, is different than the one Jesus suggests. This is a story about a teacher who knows our hearts and wants what's best for us, and comes out with his arms outstretched, inviting us into the Father's embrace and in a better way. The teacher who comes to lead us homeward. The teacher who knows that spiritual treasures are something we tend to undervalue and that they are even something that we can experience in bits and pieces in the here and the now. Will you please pray with me? Father God, we thank you for all that you do for us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for your provision for our needs here and in eternity, and we thank you that you can free us from the power of a drive for prosperity, which can eventually lead us astray. Father, we ask that whether we are in plenty or in want, you would teach us to count it all as joy, that you would give us the strength of Christ operating in our hearts, that as we pursue spiritual treasures, Father God, we would find what Paul knew what Jesus knew, that we would find and experience that the spiritual treasures that we can experience in small measures now are so worthwhile, so fulfilling, so joy-giving that they cast a shadow on any worldly treasure that makes all gold turn to dross. Father God, we ask this in the name of Jesus that you would make it true in our hearts as you have made it true in your world. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.